Welcome back to Mass Office Hours. As you're likely aware, we typically do these live on YouTube, but today's November 1st, and that means that we just released the newest issue of the Mass Research Review. Now, part of that issue, our cover story for this month, is actually an interview between our very own Lauren Colenso-Semple and Dr. Eric Helms. And in that interview, Lauren asks Eric a ton of questions about peaking for bodybuilding. So short-term things you can do to acutely enhance the appearance of your physique. So we see this in physique sports like bodybuilding. We see it in people who are preparing for a photo shoot if they're a fitness model. And there's also some little tips and tricks that you can use for other applications. So uh, instead of doing our typical live episode, we recorded that interview with Lauren and Eric. We thought it was absolutely fantastic. We wanted that uh, to make that accessible to as many people as possible. So this week, instead of our typical live programming, we are going to run that interview in its entirety. And of course, one week from today, we will be back to our normal live episodes. So uh, we hope that you enjoy it, and we hope to see you in one week for another live episode. If you want to submit questions ahead of time for next week's episode, check out the link down in the description and be sure to get those questions in. We hope you enjoy and take care. I'm thrilled to be joined by Eric Helms, who has recently competed in three back-to-back bodybuilding shows. And we're here to discuss the peak week process and how you approach that for this competitive season and how that approach has evolved uh, over previous competitive seasons. But to give the mass subscribers a bit of background, can you tell us a, a bit about how long you've been competing and how many seasons you've competed and if you know how many shows you've done? Yeah, absolutely. No, I'm excited to talk about this. Thanks, Lauren. And I really hope the mass subscribers get some benefit out of this. Um, most likely those who are interested in physique sport, which I know is not everybody, but for those who do, I think they're going to love it. Um, so yeah, you may have seen a joke or two here or there, or in every single article that Eric Trexler and Mike sort of write about my age, uh, and being the, uh, the senior statesman in mass, uh, to counter the, uh, sometimes proposed age in the seventies, I actually did turn 40 this year. And I have been competing since my first season in 07. So I just did my 16th show uh, across four seasons. I competed in 07, 2009, 2011. And then I intentionally took an extended break while I did my graduate work uh, and came back in 2019. And uh, now most recently in 2023, competing again. Um, so I specifically am trying to get professional status in the World Natural Bodybuilding Federation, which is the uh, biggest uh, global bodybuilding federation uh, in, in, the, in the drug-tested side of the sport, and it has the most international affiliates, it's arguably the most competitive, and it arguably has the most strict testing, um, which is why I'm trying to do it. But it's also challenging uh, to turn pro. There's regional differences depending on what country you're competing in, but in most cases, it needs to have at least athlete, at least eight athletes in the competitive division you're competing in, um, in a pro qualifier, in the open division, uh, and you have to win the overall. So there may be, I don't know, say 
five lightweights, five middleweights, five heavyweights, and you will need to beat the other four competitors in your class, then go on and beat the, the winner of the two other weight classes, and then you can get a pro card. There are variations on that depending on where you go. So nonetheless, I have set myself up with as many as six shows this season once I got into shape um, to try to give myself a shot at that elusive pro card uh, this season so that I can compete at Worlds, not in the amateur division, but actually in the professional division, or if I need to in the amateur division with another shot at potentially turning pro. So that's kind of the backstory of where we're at and why I'm doing all these back-to-back shows. And for the mass subscribers who might not be as familiar with bodybuilding, do you just want to make the distinction between competing in a natural versus uh, a, you know, maybe a, an NPC show or something that might be more kind of mainstream? Yeah, absolutely. And it's actually only gotten more complex over time. Um, so the way it was for a long time, uh, in the United States at least, was that the nat- uh, the National Physique Committee, the NPC, as you stated, was the amateur feeder into the IFBB, uh, or actually technically the IFBB Pro League, uh, which is where the Olympia is held and where you see folks like Ronnie Coleman, Jay Cutler, Phil Heath, et cetera, who have, um, you know, they're, they're competing. Let's, let's put it this way. Someone at my height at the top of the IFBB Pro League, so a highly competitive pro, let's say if Eric Helms decided he wanted to be Mr. Olympia and I had the genetics for it and I had to do the things necessary in a non-tested sport to get there, I would probably be at six foot, 300 pounds on stage shredded. Um, I am not 300 pounds on stage shredded. I am not even 200 pounds on stage shredded. So uh, there is a, a pretty large distinction between elite levels of the tested and untested side of the sport. Uh, the WNBF, for example, and there's a vi- wide variety of different approaches to trying to keep the sport uh, natural, um, is a 10-year uh, drug-free required organization. They have a banned substance list, largely mirroring water, but not completely because not all, not all of it's relevant to aesthetics. And uh, as the best deterrent and method that is, of course, not foolproof of ensuring that people who compete are following a 10-year banned substance drug-free policy, you have to do mandatory polygraph testing to get on stage. Uh, you read the 10-year banned substance list. You spend 20 to 30 minutes on an abbreviated polygraph with a certified polygrapher. Uh, and then you can get on stage. Then if you win a pro card, uh, you then take a urinalysis test. Um, and then once you're in the pros, you follow that same procedure, except if you compete and win money, you take the urinalysis test. So, um, yeah, so that, that is something that, that not all organizations do. There are other ones that do a similar process like the OCB or DFAC. There's a ton of natural federations. It's unfortunately very fractured. While on the non-tested side, you have two dominant federations. You have the IFB Pro League and its amateur feeder, the NPC. And they actually split with the international IFBB back in 2017. So there is two IFBBs right now, which is kind of weird. And the other weird thing is that they are sometimes tested. So there are NPC natural shows um, that have, let's just say it, uh, promoter-specific testing policies um, that are more or less rigid and depending upon the way the promoter does things and how seriously they they take being a natural show. Um, but there are pathways for athletes who want to compete in a drug-tested bodybuilding competition, even in the IFPB and NPC. They are typically like three years drug-free and they may not use a polygraph at all. It may be three years in on an honor-based system, but then ultimately you just need to pass the 
often random urinalysis test on the day. And then there's everything in between. Uh, Five-year polygraph tested, um, five-year or seven-year drug-free only urinalysis tested, uh, random urinalysis testing, et cetera. So um, yeah, it, it is a bit hit and miss. And in most cases in the natural side of the sport, um, people are competing across multiple federations to get you know, more exposure and more opportunities. Uh, I personally um, have been targeting the WNBF because my goal for a long time, going all the way back to my first season in 07 and back when Barnes and Nobles, now I'm sure my age, and Borders carried Natural Bodybuilding and Fitness Magazine, pre-social media age internet, uh, was seeing the WNBF pros on the cover right next to, say, Jake Cutler in the mid-2000s. Uh, Jim Cordova, the uh, world champion in the WNBF, was on the world was on the cover, and I was blown away as a as a guy in my early twenties, and I wanted to emulate him as one example. Um, and that was a, a magazine that the WNBF owners owned and promoted things. So that's kind of got this nostalgic attachment for me. And I also think it's probably the most competitive and largest legitimate organization in natural bodybuilding. But anyway, um, that's kind of the organizational structure and background people to understand what I've been doing. And uh, I've also been coaching natural bodybuilders since we formed 3DMJ uh, in 2010. So I've got about 13 years of experience coaching people and doing the same thing I'm doing. Um, and the first five or six years of that was full-time before I moved into more of the science communication and academic space that we now occupy in mass, but I still have a handful of athletes I work with. And I know you've documented some of your prep in greater detail on the, the 3DMJ channels if if anyone wants to go check that out. But just to give a kind of brief overview, how long was this prep? Um, and is there anything you'd like to share about this uh, particular kind of competitive season in terms of your approach to prep? Yeah. So I took four years off after 2019 and I didn't necessarily plan to take that long, but of course COVID uh, basically made it two, two dead years of, of competition opportunity which didn't really impact me because neither 2020 nor 2021 was I planning on getting back on stage. At this stage of the game for me, um, you really hope you can make some substantial changes uh, when you go from season to season. Uh, but being uh, you know closer to your genetic ceiling, you think, with training this long and also being drug-free, uh, can take a long time. So I typically take multiple years between seasons. The most co- frequently I'll compete is every other year. Um, so... This ended up being maybe one year longer than I otherwise would have planned. Um, but when I thought about it, I'm like, wait, that's the year I turned 40. This is perfect. And in 2019, I started lighter. I started a little tighter, and I competed in shows earlier in the year. This time, my goal was to compete for the first time in Worlds. So I wanted to start my prep a little later. And um, I decided that I didn't think I needed a pre-prep diet because I'd have more time. So I started dieting in mid-February at a body weight of 96 kilos, or for the Americans out there, about 211, 212, I think, if I do my math right. Um, And my stage weight is right around, when I'm in very, very lean condition, it's around 175 uh, or a touch lower, carved up a touch higher. So right around 80 kilos is where I am in peak condition, Um, give or take a kilo or there. And I have been... I took a relatively aggressive approach out of the gate. Uh, when I'm higher in body fat, I don't really have any desire to eat. So a larger deficit's fine. And also physiologically, when you're higher in body fat, 
uh, you're just much more resilient to the adaptations your body goes through when you're in an energy deficit. Um, it's easier to stay in a higher energy availability per se. So um, I got down to around 88, 87. So dropping, you know, a solid 20 pounds pretty easily in um, the first four months or so. And then it's been slower since then um, and taking it and pacing it and trying to basically make the least amount of adjustments possible to preserve as much muscle mass and willpower. Uh, the strategy I've taken has been in consultation with Alberto Nunez, who's been working with me and a good friend of mine and colleague since we first met in 07. We did our first show together. He has a very good bead on my psychology as a competitor as well as my physiology as an athlete. And um, yeah, now we're in that phase where we're trying to go from what is considered, you know, acceptable, good stage condition where you can actually see the definition in all muscle groups, hamstrings, glutes, quote unquote strided glutes is kind of the standard for male competitive bodybuilding and going even further than that so that it's, you know, striations from top to bottom of the glutes, uh, cross striations in the quadriceps, strided triceps, and um, really kind of creating an appearance of, uh, that, that's, that's very hard to uh, beat when someone is not quite as lean and that's what is competitive these days in natural bodybuilding and that requires you to preserve enough willpower to get to the point where you're already where most people are typically diet fatigued and then push further so we've done a great job uh, really just thinking about the qualitative experience of prep and trying to make the fewest adjustments as possible to not only preserve muscle mass because uh, i'm not a super muscly guy with a big frame um, but i do have good shape and if I lose any size, that shape starts to dissipate so that I can get into elite level conditioning and then be competitive at the elite level. And we've done a very good job of that. Um, the first show I had scheduled was the WNBF New Zealand on the 30th of September. The next show I had planned was on the other side of the world in Fremont, California. That's the Bay Area near San Francisco, for those who aren't aware. Uh, that's the INBF Battle of the Bay, which is one of the biggest shows in California. And then a 13-hour drive north of there in Seattle the weekend after, so this is three three shows in a row that I just got done doing, uh, was the Washington State, uh, which I did all the way back in 09. And uh, I was coming back to try to see if I could clinch it there. And this is a, what's called a super pro qualifier, meaning if there's eight in, a, in any given class, that person just in the class before the overall can get a pro card. So that's typically reserved for shows that have been well attended for a long time, and t tend to have a higher caliber of competitors. So I did those three shows back to back to back. I competed in Christchurch the next Saturday. Actually, it was eight days later because we're a day ahead. Um, I competed in Fremont, California. And then seven days later, I competed in Arlington, which is just a uh, suburb north of Seattle. So that required um, a relatively unique approach, and it's not commonly done. And the average competitor would feel sick to their stomach thinking about competing in back-to-back to back peak weeks. But I think some of that will change over time as peak week strategies become more evolved, evidence-based, and uh, some of the practices, which I think are not necessary, um, are let go of, which I think will be a really good conversation for us to have. Cool. So my understanding of, of peak week, and maybe it's not actually a week, but that's often how we would refer to it, uh, would be, you know, you're you're already in your kind of stage ready condition, but now we're really trying to dial everything in to to get you that last one percent, um, which when you're 
in a competitive situation, you know, could make or break you. And people take various approaches when it comes to to diet um, and and in some cases to training as well in in terms of how they approach that. I, I'm I'm curious how your understanding of of the purpose of of Peak Week and the, the the application of that has evolved since that very first show. Yeah, uh, great question. And the first time I got exposed to Peak Week, I understood that there was a general formula or a, a series of general formulae for different variables, and essentially everything changes for Peak Week. And I was also very fortunate that around the time I learned about that, that was when kind of the counter evidence-based, very dominant message in the natural bodybuilding space was coming out with Lane Norton of saying, hey, maybe you don't need to cut water. Maybe you shouldn't be manipulating electrolytes. And really the only practice that actually makes sense is some carbohydrate manipulation. Don't change anything. Make sure you're lean and you're not holding water. You're just not lean enough. And I think those messages are still generally helpful and generally true, but it's become a lot more nuanced in the last 16 years as I've gone through this process, coached this process, and more research has come out. So the traditional approach, kind of that formula, which is still pretty dominant, at least on the enhanced side of the sport, is that exactly like you said, you should already be in shape. It's very much akin to the active fat loss phase for a powerlifter making weight ending, and then and then them focusing more on the just dropping water uh, to actually make the weight class cut off. And that is how the average physique competitor views it. The idea is that uh, you might look good when you're lean, but you will look far better if you can reduce your subcutaneous water retention, um, which the assumption is that that is always present to some degree, and that if you can increase the amount of fullness in your muscles by doing carbohydrate loading, and trying to enhance the amount of intracellular fluid retention you have within the muscle, probably more accurately intramuscular fluid, um, when there's a disparity there, which we'll, we'll get into, and reducing the amount of subcutaneous or extracellular fluid, which also there's a disparity there, which we can get into, because not all extracellular water is subcutaneous and not all intramuscular water is extracellular. So, um, or is, is intracellular, excuse me. So... That process typically looks like doing carbohydrate loading earlier in the week following a depletion phase. So the idea is you spend two to three days, maybe four days on a very low carb, very low calorie diet while doing higher up training and cardio to deplete your muscles following an endurance-based kind of carbohydrate loading strategy or informed practice with the idea that you can then super compensate glycogen storage after this period. And then you do some heavy carbohydrate loading, typically over one to three days, typically finishing on a Friday or Thursday. And then you are stopping the carbohydrate load, going to a more moderate approach while you're restricting water to try to ensure that you have this combination of low overall body water. But because you loaded carbohydrate and because carbs have an osmotic uh, property where they draw water with them and the typical physiology textbook will tell you that they store three grams of water with every bound molecule of glycogen, every gram of glycogen in muscle, that you will prevent by glycogen loading, dehydrating the muscle, which is like 70% water. And you will only dehydrate from other spaces, preferentially losing subcutaneous water, maintaining intramuscular water. Uh, and then there are other things that are done on top of that, like increasing your sodium, sorry, increasing your potassium, and then decreasing your sodium 
with the idea based upon uh, the, the the intracellular pump mechanism of potassium drawing water into a cell and sodium drawing it out of it. And all this sounds great in theory, but physiology is far more complex than that. And it doesn't seem to work in practice. And there are actually holes in some of that logic. So what I have seen over the years is that people will follow this general process of carbohydrate deplete, carbohydrate load, restrict water, load potassium, cut sodium. And then on show day, they look weird. They look off. Or at the very least, sometimes it looks good, but it's highly inconsistent. And the first thing that I think is worth pointing out is that these variables are not being manipulated for 24 weeks, 16 weeks, 12 weeks at the very least. Um, And people are looking good and looking better and better and better. Then all of a sudden, they literally change five or six variables in ways that they've never done it before. And uh, it very much appears like and acts as though they're just rolling, rolling the dice. Um, they often change their food sources, and on the enhanced side of the sport, they're often changing their drug protocols last minute. And this is something we don't have to worry about as much on the natural side, but you could also argue that this may be something that you really do have to think about on the enhanced side, because many of the side effects of certain drugs that are used both for cutting and for maintaining muscle mass is water retention that may be outside of the normal physiological norms. So I, while I can't speak to the enhanced side of the sport, um, I have it on some authority, people I do trust pretty well, uh, that in certain cases, depending on what you're taking at what level, uh, you may need to think about uh, water retention that is not going to occur within the bounds of typical normal drug-free physiology. But if I think if we constrain this to drug-free bodybuilding, um, generally that process goes very poorly. And um, it is at the very least unpredictable. You mentioned that cutting water might not be appropriate for a natural competitor versus an enhanced competitor. Is that is that still the, the practice? Is that something that the natural competitors kind of took from the enhanced side and, and maybe isn't uh, something that, that should be part of the peaking practice? Yeah. Historically, the whole idea of peaking and following that formula was something that started in like the 80s. Um, you see folks like Dan Duchesne and others So it was definitely in the drug era, and it was before the drug-free era, which kind of started late 80s, early 90s, at least in any kind of size. There there was natural proponents as early as the 70s, like your Chet Yortons with the Yorton Cup, the OCB uh, World Championship is named after, and there were absolutely drug use and bodybuilding that was pretty widespread starting in the 60s. But the conditioning standard really hit its peak in bodybuilding in the 80s with folks like Rich Gaspari and others trying to go up against Lee Haney and finding a way to beat them and trying to look really, really lean. And that's when the use of diuretics started and water manipulation and sodium manipulation. So all these processes were part of bodybuilding before there really was natural bodybuilding. And I think they did get absolutely inherited. So that is something that I think is just a really important reminder when drug-free athletes are taking advice from the best of the enhanced bodybuilders who are very different even from the regional level enhanced bodybuilders who might be taking one or two compounds, who are actually taking, you know, grams upon grams of anabolic steroids in addition to cutting drugs and something, some things like DNP or, or CLEN or uh, thyroid hormone that, that can all have a profound impact on, on water retention. And then on top of that, they are then taking diuretics and manipulating all the other things I discussed nutritionally. So, um, 
that is a very complex process and it may be necessary in some cases. I don't have expertise on that, but absolutely it is inherited from the enhanced ranks and there's a lot of assumptions baked into it that do not simply apply to a drug-free competitor. And are bodybuilders also trying to get down to a particular weight class during this this process, or should they already be there? And uh, you know, is is that part of the equation? It can be, and this is another thing that I think is probably a bad idea for the natural athlete. So, when you look at the distribution of male bodybuilders across light, middle, and heavyweight you almost always see a uneven distribution to where you have a lot more middleweights and lightweights. Uh, the heavyweight cutoff is typically around 185 or 190. And just as the way it seems to have shaken out in terms of what is an amount of muscle mass someone can carry when they're in really good shape on average among competitive bodybuilders who are drug-free, um, the average stage weight is probably 160. So I have noticed that heavyweights almost purely consists of one of three types of people. Uh, a middleweight who is not dieted enough, um, someone who's over six foot, uh, or the person who's just an absolute freak and is probably going to win if they're in shape. Um, not always, because you know the, the, the way a physique looks does not always coincide with a higher stage weight. But um, you often will have classes of five to ten middleweights and lightweights in a show, and then three to seven or three to six in the heavies and the middle and the heavyweights have a lot less competitive physiques. There's typically one big guy out of shape and one really good obvious winner, and then someone who's tall and lanky, and and you know it, it's 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 a bit of a crapshoot. And the reality is is that because you're not dealing with drug use and inconsistent drug use, especially at the at like what occurs at the regional or below national level in enhanced bodybuilding, like if you go to an enhanced show or a non-tested show, like maybe 40% at the local level are using something. And maybe of those 40%, a few of them are actually in the hunt for a national qualifier, trying to get the IPB Pro card and taking comparable amounts of anabolics to what the pros are taking. So one of those people might be a super heavyweight, 220 pounds on stage, in shape at 5'6". But there's just as many people who are you know drug-free and distributed where they need to be. In a national show, you don't get that disparity. It's just genetic disparity. And almost every person as a rule is going to do better the leaner they are, so long as they're not sacrificing fullness. So you shouldn't be shooting for a weight class in most cases. Uh, You should just be simply dieting to the point when you are very, very lean and seeing where the chips fall. And most cases where people do chase a specific weight class, it doesn't doesn't go well because they either need to be overly depleted or they are not lean enough. And the only times it really makes sense are when you're on the edge of a weight class and you know that there's someone who is, and you'll have to have a competitive advantage in one of those classes. So for example, if you're right on the cusp of middleweight and heavyweight and you're in a super pro qualifier and you know that there's seven heavyweights and there's already more than eight middleweights, and if you win your class, you can get a pro card and you know that the heavyweights are less competitive for the reasons I said before, it may behoove you as a heavier middleweight to weigh in without taking off your sweatshirt if they let you just as just as an example um and i may or may not have done this in the past but um that's that's kind of like the only cases where that really matters so you could throw that in and many competitors think well i want to be at the top of this weight class 
but um, that often results in a worse look and uh, maybe too much of an assumption that size makes a huge difference when that's often size and body weight are not the same thing. Body weight has a lot more to do with your height, your bone structure, et cetera. Uh, but the appearance of size in bodybuilding is all about illusions. Sure. So is this something that you can sort of calculate in terms of, hey, let's increase by this much, let's decrease by this much, you know, we can plug all the variables into a spreadsheet and here we go? Or is it much more variable and, and subjective? Does it involve some trial and error? You know, how do we approach this? You can find spreadsheets that even are based upon theory that I would agree with for creating a peak week. And if you actually read my, my second edition books, I have I have one such uh, like table on how to, how to do that. Um, but you're dealing with a dynamic system, a lot of assumptions, and a changing environment. Uh, we don't have perfect control over energy expenditure, uh, cortisol levels, uh, food labels are not necessarily accurate. Um, you know, you don't necessarily control your levels of sweat and, and sodium losses, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it needs to be pretty dynamic. Um, and I think responsive is probably the word I would use. So you typically will have a plan written down, um, and it involves some of the variables we talked about, but not all of them. And I think the, 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 the general starting point for most natural athletes that seems to make sense based upon what we understand of the full hypothetical physiological mechanisms, not kind of cherry picking them, uh, and the anecdotal experience is that carbohydrate loading absolutely does increase muscle size. Uh, that's been shown not only in uh, endurance athletes, there's actually one study where they looked at changes uh, through anthropometry while they were carb loading these endurance athletes, but also more recently in a quasi-experimental study and uh, some observational studies and also a case study. And we've reviewed more than half of those in mass. Um, so we do see increases in muscle size from carbohydrate loading. We also do know that there is an association between extracellular water and skinfold thicknesses, which I reviewed a couple issues ago by Escalante. However, we also know that there is a relationship between skinfold thicknesses and total body water that's inverse, meaning that the more dehydrated you are, that can, that can cause an issue and create higher extracellular water levels. So dehydrating yourself can create a fluid shift towards the extracellular region, and the extracellular higher water is associated with more muscle thickness. So, sorry, more skinfold thicknesses. So, while it is true that what bodybuilders are observing, that when they look less defined, it could be from extracellular water retention, the method to deal with that of dehydration may actually be part of the cause or at least counterproductive. So, that's interesting, right? So, some of the sacred cows of the approach to peak week, I think, need to be let go of. Um, but we can have confidence in certain things. Carbohydrate loading increases muscle size. And anecdotally, it seems that when you carbohydrate load to some degree, depending on how far you take it and how aggressive that loading process is, there's a period where you look worse. And the theoretical reason for that is that either temporally, it at, during the carbohydrate load, or in an absolute sense, there's too much carbohydrate more than can fit in the muscle. And because carbohydrate is osmotic, it's pulling water with it. And some of that ends up in the subcutaneous layer. Um, the temporal component is an important one in that it takes time to carbohydrate load. If you look at the studies, it's typically 24 to 48 hours before you can fully saturate muscle glycogen. 
So in that interim period, most people look worse. So there does need to be a cleanup, quote unquote, phase where your body, body you don't have to do anything in my opinion. You just naturally go through the process of letting your water compartments get back to normal. Um, and you absolutely can be, quote unquote, holding water on stage. And this is an evolution in my own thought process. Um, but it is typically a temporary condition. And the outcome that you typically are trying to get to when you know things are going well is that your carbohydrate loading on an individualized amount over an individualized time frame, based upon how long it takes to seem for that individual to look better after looking worse from loading. And with the goal of, on the Friday night before the competition, looking full, so your muscles look larger than they were previously because you've loaded carbohydrate, but you look a little bit worse in terms of your crispness or definition because you spilled over a little bit, knowing that the earliest you're going to be competing is in the morning, depending upon your division, that overnight when you're not eating and you're sleeping and you're just laying or, or trying to sleep for eight hours, that you will only look better. And most people look a lot crisper in the morning. So looking slightly quote unquote spilled over, which is what we assign as a descriptor of that uh, holding water kind of look due to carbohydrate loading, fixes itself over an overnight sleeping period typically. And then you assess on the day of and knowing that you really don't have much time to store glycogen, it's just a matter of trying to maintain a certain level of, uh, of fullness and uh, maintaining a relatively normal electrolyte balance, perhaps slightly more sodium, which is actually contrary to your typical thought processes. The reason why I actually like to see sodium rather than potassium higher on game day is multifold. So the traditional wisdom uh, or I should say the mechanism of the muscle pump is accurate, that sodium does drive water towards the extracellular compartment and potassium towards the intracellular. However, intramuscular is not the same thing. Like there are extracellular components to intramuscular water. In fact, there's a lot of them. Likewise, extracellular is not synonymous with subcutaneous and your entire vascular system is extracellular. And the way we get a pump, the way we pump up, um, the showing of vascularity and just basically your blood pressure are all going to be negatively impacted by shifting towards potassium and away from sodium. And the typical experience of a competitor is they start to get hypotensive over time. You stand up, you get lightheaded, you see your blood pressure and your heart rate get really low, largely as a consequence of uh, REDS, red S, relative energy deficiency in sport. Um, and you can correct that to some degree from being in it an acute energy surplus because you're carbohydrate loading, but you may be able to help that a little bit more by increasing sodium. And we see that can raise blood pressure a few few points here and there. That's something that should be trialed as it does seem to be very individual, the responsiveness to higher sodium and being able to get a pump, higher blood pressure, etc. So on paper, theoretically, the way we approach it is we keep sodium potassium as a ratio to one another relatively stable have slightly saltier foods on game day to try to get that acute boost in uh, in the, the in blood pressure, able to get a pump on game day, looking a little harder and tighter after you pump up, and making sure that we load carbohydrates to an appropriate amount and with enough time to therefore clean up by the time you're on stage and then hold that look. Uh, and that's primarily assessed as a coach or as an athlete by viewing your physique the Friday before the show, um, which is a challenge because you're also getting tanner on. So you're used to seeing yourself uh, with a very different skin complexion if you're traveling in different lighting. So there is some degree of not being able to logistically keep your monitoring 
the same. So when I travel, I will often take uh, video and I, I will actually travel with, and here's for the video watchers, a ring light, you know, like, like classic influencer that provides a consistent lighting source, turn off the lights in, 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 in the hotel, close everything and get a direct view. And then use my check-ins to do that as well. So I can replicate the same lighting conditions while traveling. And then my coach and I will assess that and I will send in pictures uh, before I get my color and afterwards so that we can really try to have the best data and feedback. And then it's just a matter of, all right, am I full enough on Friday? And maybe we add a little bit more. So what that looks like, just to give an example for me specifically, is I am typically loading on Wednesday and Thursday and then it starts tapering down as I go into the show. And that's based upon how flat I look, quote unquote, which is low on glycogen, small looking, not quite filled out, but still tight, um, leading into that competition. And Can I the, interrupt um, you to ask, is this loading followed following a depletion phase or is this from your baseline carbohydrate intake? Great question. Um, so I don't think most people need to do an intentional depletion because typically they are actually dieting during this phase anyway, which results in glycogen depletion. So if you're actively in a deficit, uh, lean and getting leaner, you might as well consider that depletion. And when we look at some of the carbohydrate loading protocols that are out there, there's not a clear advantage of doing hardcore depletion and then trying to get super compensation anyway, in terms of the amount of glycogen stored. And also we have to remember that endurance athletes, they don't care what they look like or if they spill over. They're not checking their, their quads on the Tour de France like, oh man, am I looking good on, the, on, on, on ESPN right now? And I'm pretty sure that they're going to err on the side of let me make sure I get as much glycogen in me as possible. Um, while we are probably going to err on the side of I don't want to spill over because you alluded, to, you know, you threw out a percentage number, which I don't think I'd it, you know, it, I don't think we can pin it down, but you're like, there's a, you know, a 1% improvement you can get from peak week. Um, and it may be that, maybe a little more than that in some cases, but what I can absolutely tell you is that you can have an unequal distribution of how much you mess up your look. So if you do a bunch of wild stuff, you can literally look like you looked six weeks prior to being in shape. If you're managed to really mess up your electrolyte balance, spill over, or be so so flat that your muscle definition is not showing and your symmetry is off. Um, so I think there's a potential to, to, to reduce your performance by 10, 15% and maybe enhance it by five, maybe 10% in extreme cases. Um, but I think a one to 5% improvement is, is a reasonable expectation and looking the best you have in prep on game day, even if it's 1% better is a win in terms of peak week for sure. So um, what was your question again? So you, you said you don't think the, the carbohydrate depletion is necessary. Right. So we're starting with the with the, the carbohydrate loading. And so not only have you not done a intentional depletion, you also haven't altered your training prior to, to the loading. Is that correct? I think there is some merit to altering your training, training a little bit, okay. um, but maybe not to extreme levels. Um, there is signaling that goes on metabolically in muscle that tells it how much glycogen should be stored there. So like the GLUT4 receptor uh, responds to resistance training and training in general and says, hey, feed me carbs. I need to maintain high glycogen levels because this guy keeps burning it off. What is he doing? Um, and 
if you were to do some of the traditional protocols of like not training your legs for a whole week or even longer prior to the show, I could see a case where your body is starting to not store as much glycogen in your legs, right? But the reason why people do that is also has merit. Um, they notice that when they stop training legs, their legs look crisper. And that probably comes from the traditional practices of bodybuilding training of being high volume or low volume, but always to failure and typically producing a lot of muscle damage and using soreness as something that, that, that indicates you've done a good job, especially with leg days. It almost has like cultural significance. And there is a fair amount of data that shows that storing glycogen is impaired when there's actual muscle damage. It actually damages the, the muscle to the point where it does not have the capacity to store glycogen to the same degree. So what you want to do is do training, theoretically, that maintains the muscle's metabolic ability to store carbohydrate um, without actually causing damage which impairs it. So some of the things that I do during peak week is I start to taper off my volume as I get closer to the show. I also shift the orders that legs are trained further from the competition than closer. They tend to be a little more systemically fatiguing. Uh, and I find it's a little more easy to cause muscle damage with the leg exercises we traditionally use because they train you at longer muscle lengths um, with higher, just because of the force curve of most exercises. Um, and staying away from other uh, eccentric dominant high load at long muscle lengths training, staying shorter of failure. So it just kind of looks like an easier week of training that tapers off as you get close to the competition. And then there are some individual differences there. Some people will train like lower on Monday, upper on Wednesday, and that's it. That's kind of on the extreme end of what I would consider minimalistic training a week of the show. I'm kind of on the other end. I notice I look better on days I train, at least the upper body. So what I will typically do is on Thursday, I do a very, very light leg session. We're talking two sets of seated leg extensions, two sets of lying leg curls, and that's it, stopping three or four reps from failure, doing 10 to 12 reps, something like that. Um, and that's just to kind of keep things going where they're going. But I will actually do a, a relatively legit upper body workout on Thursday because I find I don't get very sore. I recover quite quickly. I won't go to failure. I won't do you know three sets per, per exercise, but it will be maybe 70% of my normal volume and stopping two reps shy of failure. And then on Friday, I'll just do a light pump up similar to what I'll do on game day for my upper body. And I notice this makes me look better when I compete. So that is very individual. Um, but the overall philosophy that you want to get to, which will look different for each person because of the, their own responsiveness to damage and uh, their own metabolic response to training, is that you want to make sure you're not producing a lot of muscle damage while you're carb loading. And you also want to make sure that you're not uh, losing some of the look to your muscles that they have um, when they're when you're training regularly, but not overdoing it. So there is some modifications there, but I think they should be a individualized, but b probably less extreme than the typical approaches you'll see in bodybuilding. So if we go back to the nutrition side of things, we're looking at starting a carbohydrate load on Wednesday, let's say, for a, a Saturday show, and would that include changing your food sources or are we just looking at at numbers here yeah there are potentially some food source changes and that's because a lot of the times at the stage of prep when you're getting really really lean you're leveraging a lot of foods that are more satiating and provide more mechanical satiety so you might have someone on let's say 150 grams of carbohydrate but that might be 40 grams to 50 grams of fiber 
right? So only 100, 110 of those grams are potentially storable as muscle glycogen. Um, and you don't want to do that. You don't want to slow down that digestion time course, nor do you want to, well, part of the action of fiber, at least certain types of fiber, is to draw water into your uh, intestinal tract, which is great from a satiety perspective, but not great from making you feel and look a little bloated. You tend to notice, like if you eat a whole bowl of broccoli, your, your abdominal area is going to be a little uh, watery. And that's something you can visibly see. You can try it out, um, especially if you're lean enough to see the differences. So generally what you'll do is you'll maintain a lot of your more starchy carbohydrate sources, um, which you may not have on low days at all, depending on how low, you, low you're getting. But if you have a refeed protocol, this is actually really, really important. You know, we could debate the benefits of a refeed-based approach. There is some good research we've covered on diet breaks and refeeds in mass. And they are debatable and they're unclear. Uh, what we do know is at the very least, they seem to be as good as a linear dieting approach and they potentially enhance uh, diet adherence and combat hunger, although they do extend the length of the diet because there are periods when you're at maintenance. But the really good benefit of a refeed is it's an opportunity for a trial carb load every single week. And as you get leaner and leaner and leaner, let's say you have the, you know, the Campbell protocol where they had two days at maintenance, that's very similar to what a carb load, a modest carb load might look like um, with two days at maintenance, especially if you're primarily getting to maintenance through a carbohydrate increase. And you can see, okay, what do I look like on the Saturday of my first carb load in a normal refeed week? Do I look better on Sunday, better on Saturday, better on Monday? Or sometimes do I look better on Tuesday? Does it actually take me some time to kind of quote unquote clean up? And then you can reverse engineer that into a peaking protocol. So earlier I alluded to the fact that while three weeks of peaking in a row might make some competitors sick to their stomach just even thinking about it, it really shouldn't be that hard. And that's because that's exactly what I did. My normal dieting protocol uh, right now is five low days where I'm in a large deficit and then two days at around my maintenance calories or estimated maintenance on Saturday and Sunday. Now that doesn't make sense for doing a show, but I just simply back shifted it and created a little more of a tapered effect rather than two high days. So for example, in the, uh, the two, well, actually all three shows that I did, I had a high day higher than my typical refeed on Thursday. And then on Friday, the day before the show, I had a middle ground between my low days and that high day. And then on the day of the show, I ate very minimally and just maintained high water output and the carb sources I had were relatively high in sodium. And that seemed to create the best combination. I think for this next show, I might try even pushing it back a little further. because I noticed after this last show, I looked a little bit tighter on Sunday without losing fullness. And that's the type of responsiveness that I'm talking about. It's very visual, it's very subjective. Um, and it does require maintaining a lot of variables in relatively tight control under uh, a changing environment. So it is a bit of a crapshoot. But if you have that prior data, and you're looking at how you respond on a day-to-day -day basis when you're, say, inside of six weeks out and in good shape, you can just simply retool uh, your order of, a f of, of, uh, of refeeds within multiple weeks in a row, and you don't really lose any dieting time. Because the typical, you know, what we said typically is that you see peak week as, okay, you're done doing fat loss, and now we're trying to manipulate these acute, you know, water compartment variables. And I don't think that's necessarily true, um, even in the old you know, approaches like when you're depleting, you're absolutely going to be losing fat. And, uh, so, you know, you, you probably are changing some things, but the way I was able to do it is there was a noticeable improvement in my conditioning at each of the three shows I did. 
Um, and the third show, it looked more like I got fuller and lost some crispness because we pushed the carbohydrate load each time. Because based on the last one, like, okay, did I look at all spilled? No, great, maybe we can get a little fuller. And the third show that I did in a row, I didn't look quite as tight as the show prior, but I did look a little bigger. So there was like maybe this very slight sacrifice and maybe we should have gone, you know, 10% less carbohydrate or something like that. But, uh, or shifted it back a day, which is what we're going to try for this uh, show that I'm doing in two weeks now. So those type of alterations are all informed upon, or are all informed by what you see. Um, and the amount of carbohydrate that you load in the timing can be directly informed by the visual changes you see in response to your refeeds that you do in the course of the diet, which I would advise people do at least just for those purposes. Um, and then the other variables are, like you said, food sources. You want to keep those the same while reducing things that are going to be tough on, on uh, your, the gastrointestinal tract. And again, if you don't have refeeds, those foods have not been introduced sometimes 12, 16, 20 weeks. When do you have the opportunity to eat, you know, rice or, you know, potatoes or these things when you only have hundred grams of carbs every single day. And, uh, as we know, a lot of the digestive enzymes and both in quantity and the amount are responsive to, and the, the gut microbiota is responsive to what we're eating. So if you introduce a lot of new things, sometimes you can run into some pretty serious digestive issues. So it's important to, on your refeeds and during the carb load, to make sure that you don't go crazy with just all fruits and vegetables, um, because that will not result in a good visual look. You'll get that kind of weird distended gut. Uh, you'll be having GI disruption on show day, which you never want, and um, not filling out the way you expected. So food sources are important. You want them to be both familiar but also you probably want to drop to a relatively minimal fiber intake. I'd say like 20 grams or less on average for the typical person. So it looks like the, the timing and the, the quantity of the carbohydrates is sort of the, the meat of the approach. And we're not changing our water. And Correct. what about sodium? When does that come into play, if at all? And, and what? how do you feel is the, the relative importance of that um, in the kind of grand scheme of the approach? Good question. Now, I do notice with some people that um, drinking water will acutely, I'm talking for an, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, they can, especially if, and this is just anecdotal, especially if they've been well carb loaded, uh, they will look just a little worse um, for the next 20 minutes. So there is something to be said for, I like to personally keep water high so that we're seeing relatively clear urinations on show day and then timing it so that the last time you drink water is like an hour before you get on stage. Uh, and then if you're getting on stage twice, you just do that multiple times, right? So you're, you're hydrated from a 24 hour perspective, but you're not actively hydrating immediately prior to getting on stage in most cases. Um, and you don't want to be really, really high in water more than your normal intake because that will result in additional sodium losses. Um, now, as far as the sodium itself, this seems very individual, and this is something you can test. Um, you can just throw back a quarter teaspoon of salt and just see what happens if you take a gram of sodium, not salt, because they're not a one-to-one -one conversion, and do a pump up. See if, and you should notice this within five, ten, ten minutes tops. If you get an acutely better pump, if you see vascularity come out and you look better and harder in response to a pump up, fantastic. That's a good strategy for you. Um, some people notice the opposite. And there are differences when you look at studies on sodium excretion rates. There are even racial differences. Um, 
um, I've like there's studies in African Americans that show on average slightly different sodium excretion rates than Caucasian. So um, not saying that you know you should racially change a priori the the approach to to your peak week, but the point is that there are individual differences, and it's you you should trial it before on game day going hey let's let's throw back a bunch of sodium. Um, so my kind of default approach is to have a slightly higher, like 10% higher than normal sodium intake on show day, some potassium. So like, for example, in the first meal, potatoes or banana is a great way to get some of your carbohydrates. Um, and that should be your first meal a little further away from, from, from the actual getting on stage period. And then your food should be salted or, you know, more salty carbohydrate sources like pretzels are a great example. They're basically fat free and they have a high sodium content throughout the rest of the day. And then based upon the trial of that little pump up that you did two weeks ago of just throwing back some salt and, and which is not fun, but you know, we do what we do. And to see if you get a good response from it, then you can replicate that on game day. And if you have a neutral response or a negative response, you just don't do that component. And the impact I would say is relatively minor in the grand scheme of things. The most important thing by far is making sure that you are staying hydrated. Um, and that can be make acute differences within minutes of looking full. That's the one thing that you can correct on show day is if you are really dehydrated and you got two hours before you get on stage, if you chug a couple liters of water, that will fix itself and you won't look bad. You'll only look better uh, if you have that time just to kind of for everything to get to where it's supposed to be. Um, but it can make you look very flat, even though you're carbohydrate loaded. Um, I've reviewed this in a few studies in mass. The the misconception we have is not a true misconception that there's only three grams of water stored with each gram of glycogen, but that is basically the minimal amount that is bound to glycogen. But because of the osmotic properties of carbohydrates, when you're in a well-hydrated state after exercise and you're taking in carbohydrates with enough fluids to fully replenish your weight losses, there was a study in cyclists who did this in the heat, and they found that they actually had a 17 to 1, not a 3 to 1 ratio of grams of water in the muscle versus uh, grams of glycogen. So you can imagine that someone who is dehydrated but still glycogen loaded could still look quite flat and small just based upon those numerical differences, and I've seen that many times. So on game day, you really want to make sure you're having clear urinations, but you're not drinking in so much that you're peeing out all your sodium. You're using that individualized salt uh, pre-pump-up approach if you need it. Uh, you're maintaining a kind of low normal carbohydrate level just so you don't start getting depleted throughout the day because you are going to be on your feet. You are pumping up. Uh, you are posing, and that is actual active contractions. Um, and this, the day is going on, like your metabolism still is happening, right? So you're, you're trying to maintain that look, and that occurs through sufficient sodium, slightly higher than normal, and then potentially even higher acutely, uh, a normal water intake, but not immediately before you get on stage, and then maintaining a sufficient amount of carbohydrates to keep the look that you had going from the morning after that spillover cleanup on Friday night. That's the kind of the basic approach that I take with most competitors, and then we're just shifting things backwards or forward. The only time that that changes substantially is when the competitor is not actively dieting during that peak. So for example, there's a good chance that either at Worlds or this Australia show will decide we are lean enough now and we actually want to bring food up. And I want to get as close to my maintenance intake on a day-to-day -day basis, not just on refeeds, as possible and improve my fullness, regain some muscle, reverse a minor amount of reds. And generally, this you see a visual improvement from this. This is called, quote-unquote, eating up into your show, or sometimes it's coined a linear load because it typically happens towards the end of a contest prep if you are able to do it 
leading into competitions anyway. And now what you have is just a less chronically depleted glycogen state. You're walking around at 80, 90% of your top doc glycogen stores. So these loads become far less load looking. You know, you'll, you'll be on 300 grams of carbohydrates Monday through Thursday, for example. And then on Friday, you'll just have an, an, an extra meal before bed of another 80 grams of carbohydrate. And that might be it. Um, because you've essentially been on refeeds every single day. And if you're able to do this, you tend to get much more consistent looks on stage because the food sources are the same. The electrolyte sources stay relatively the same. Your fluid intake stays the same. And you tend to have a less stressed and fatigued body because you're not in a constant energy deficit state. Um, your training actually gets you know better and uh, you have better energy levels. So you're psychologically in a better place. So you may not be having water retention from cortisol spikes because there's a whole psychological game that goes into this. So that is a great place to be in. And then all of a sudden, the entire structure of this looks differently. And it's just a matter of maybe bringing things up a little bit on Friday um, and then assessing in the morning and then going lighter or more normal based upon how well you clean up and how full you are or aren't looking on game day. Um, I think that addressed all those questions. Did I cover more? I think so. I recall a, a few years ago there being some sort of different approaches about doing this front load versus back load uh, uh-huh. approach, and and um, the meaning you would instead of having your carbohydrate increase midweek for your weekend show, you'd actually uh, have it on on Friday. Um, yep. Is there is that something that that is still in practice, and is there merit to that approach? Absolutely. So um, when you load, I, I have basically become a lot more agnostic and flexible in my terminology. Um, you noticed I gave examples of someone who cleans up after refeeds on Tuesday. That would be someone who would do something that would look like a front load, right? If it took them two days after two days of carb loading to look good. If we draw that back, that means they're loading their carbohydrates on like Tuesday. You know, that, that would be more akin to a front load. Um, likewise, some people look really good as they're loading and they don't seem to retain a lot of water. Um, and they might be a good candidate for a back load, especially if they're trying to get leaner for longer in the week. And um, there are some coaches who find a consistent way, at least for individuals, to prevent a lot of water retention while loading. And they do like a rapid backload. Like it all happens on Friday, you know. Um, I find that is much more of a gamble. and doesn't work super consistently. And even the, the folks who do it will say, yeah, you have to trial this beforehand. But the traditional front load is loading on like Monday, Tuesday. And the data actually to back this up would suggest that if you don't do uh, glycogen depleting training, muscle glycogen will stay relatively constant. And you'll be using things like blood glucose, liver glycogen, and triglyceride for your day-to-day activities if you're not training. So that is a safe bet, doing a front load, of just making sure that you've prevented being flat. So you would do something like load on a Monday, Tuesday, and then just have kind of moderate days leading into the show, and you have a slight bump on maybe Friday, uh, but not not to the same kind of height we would talk about in, in a back load, and then maintain that look on game day. And that's very viable. Um, I have found that it's just not necessary and it, there is a few more moving parts. You know, your week has a double peak instead of one peak, then taper. Um, and I personally find that it's uh, not necessary and it removes more dieting days, but it's absolutely an option, um, especially for people who struggle to not be flat 
on on competition day. You might do a, a load early in the week and then just kind of keep it moderate to try to maintain that look and then top you off on Friday. That's generally the way I would recommend and for whom I would recommend a front load is people who can get flat quite quickly. Your more active, lightweight competitors who really you know, depend upon looking full to be competitive, you don't want them to risk being flat on show day. So you might have uh, loading on Monday, Tuesday, knowing that, okay, that's, there's no issue with them spilling over because we have all this time. And then just kind of on a day-to-day basis, babysitting their look, essentially. Like, hey, send me, send me a video this morning. And like, oh, you're looking flat today. Like, where was your water intake? How many meals have you had? Okay, let's, let's get another 100 grams of carbs on, on top of the plan. And just trying to prevent them from flattening out. And um, this is actually quite similar to the linear loading approach, but if they're not in shape yet, this might be what you favor. Um, so uh, yeah, the front load absolutely is still an option, still should be in the, the coach's arsenal, if you will. But I think it, um, it, it's not as simple and it, is not, it doesn't have as many use cases as I used to think compared to kind of this, this more just one peak than taper down approach with a really easy way of, of assessing success on Friday night, am I looking good, but a little spilly and then adjust on show day that I find is just the most user-friendly, if you will, the least moving parts, the least psychologically stressful. Um, you don't have to think about your fiber sources the whole week, you know, throughout, um, because you know, when you carbohydrate load, you actually want that to get stored. And even if that's happening on Monday, um, but when you do kind of that, uh, mid load or back load, you really only need to change things as you get quite close to the show. And there's just fewer things to assess and fewer days that you need to assess. So very viable, totally fine. Uh, and it kind of gives you like these four buckets to fall into. Am I front loading, am I mid loading, am I back loading, or am I eating up into my show and then just topping myself off? And I think there are uh, opportunities and use cases for each. It sounds like there's a ton of, of variability between people. And so some trial and error is, is certainly um, warranted and you probably would benefit from doing multiple shows because y- you know you learn if maybe you didn't get it right on show one. Um, but for one individual competitor, is this reproducible? If you find something that worked, do we do the same thing next time? Typically, but the, I think we also have to acknowledge that we live in a in a body that is dynamic and an environment that we can't always predict. So if you're flying if you have stress in your life if um, you are traveling and don't have access to typical food sources um, if you have an allergic response to something um, if you have a mild illness uh, that you you didn't anticipate coming up and you are immune compromised in most cases in the state um, all of those things can throw things off um, and they are not necessarily always identifiable you just know that something didn't work right. So I think it is critical to accept a certain level of uncertainty. Um, and I would say that um, you probably are going to have an 80% hit rate of it being a good look and at least not a bad look once you've established a response pattern in a competitor. Um, so for example, I wasn't anticipating in my third show to be a little bit less tight than the one prior. But the degree to which I was less tight was minuscule and probably overshadowed by the slightly larger amount of fullness. And that was probably because I also got a little bit leaner. So being a spillover 0.5% leaner physique doesn't look as spilled over as being 0.5% less lean, right? And having that fullness, uh, you know, it's, it's a trade-off. 
So I think that is a far different level of risk and reward than when you're doing the kind of things we talked about earlier in this interview, where you're manipulating a ton of variables. And you really can, like I said, lose the appearance of six weeks of dieting in 24 hours. Um, and I would say that with the approaches we've discussed, and I think some, some additional information, maybe some firmer parameters might be helpful. On your loading days, uh, typically you see competitors consuming between like four to eight grams per kilogram. That's the spread, with most people being somewhere closer to like five to seven, right? But just kind of covering maybe two standard deviations from the norm. And on that second load day, if you're using that, say, Wednesday, Thursday, or Thursday, Friday approach, it's probably 75 to 80% of that. And you're going to have that mostly earlier in the day, so you have time to see that store, and then you're doing an assessment at night, and you might have one more uh, intake of probably no more than one to two grams per kilogram of carbohydrate, because it's going to take time in the overnight fast to actually get stored. So um, that leads to an individualized intake within some parameters. And another way you can define those is that your heaviest loading day might be as much as 25% to a third more than your refeed carbohydrate intake and calorie intake. And then your you know tapered day might be as high as a refeed or maybe the midway point between a refeed or as low as the midway point between a low day and a refeed. And you can extend that another day if you need more time to clean up, and it might be some other midway point. And then on show day, it kind of looks like something slightly higher than a low day, or similar to a uh, like that 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 Friday intake. Um, and you're just thinking about the meals now. You're not thinking about the total day intake. When am I going to be on stage, and how many meals should I have? I generally think like two meals is sufficient to maintain a look, unless you're for some reason only getting on stage in the late evening, which you know shows go pretty haywire. But most of the time, you're looking at being on stage somewhere between uh, 9 a.m. and 3 p.m. in most cases. And then you can finagle a couple meals or even one meal if you're on in the early morning to just kind of replicate your normal intake to kind of maintain what you look like. So that's broad parameters, but those are parameters, which are hopefully helpful to the listener. And then once you've found that individualized amount and you've trialed it and you've figured out when the timing and the amount is appropriate for you, from there you can be relatively confident that you won't look bad if you repeat that. Um, you may look not not better, uh, but you're going to look similar to what you look like on a regular basis uh, in most cases. And if you're you know not running into one of these random environmental or situational things that you don't have control over, or if your body just gets sick or freaks out for some reason, um, and that could provide a lot of confidence, knowing that the work you put in is not going to be hidden. Um, and you know that best case scenario, it'll look enhanced. So, um, that is about the level of consistency you can get from it is a a guaranteed as good as you look when you're, when you're, when you're dieting and more likely that you'll look a little bit better when you have an approach like this. It's far less of a gamble. And are there any other considerations for someone like you who was doing the back-to-back shows? Yes. It is challenging to not participate in the cultural norm of going out to eat post-show and really going hard. Um, And the way that I recommend people do this is that if they are having that kind of two meals before stage approach on on game day, um, that they primarily focus on carbohydrates. So the fats are there just to maintain a slower digestion or normal digestion speed. But I'm talking five to 10 grams per meal. The carbohydrates, depending upon the size of the competitor, are going to be 20 to 60 grams per meal. And then the protein can be quite minimal because you're not really working on building muscle on show day. So we're talking 
15 to 30 grams per meal, depending on the size of the competitor. So at most, you're going to be finishing your competition day uh, on 700, 800 calories, right? And you've banked a lot there. You know, you could have a thousand calorie meal and probably still be in a deficit because you're on your feet all day out when you eat. And it's just a matter of having a little bit of restraint and still having that celebratory time with the other competitors. So I went out to eat after all three shows that I did. And in each case, I got like salmon and rice uh, with a side of vegetables and a salad or something like that. And in one one case, I even got dessert because it was a kind of a fancy restaurant with a very small serving of salmon and rice. And I had a like a lemon meringue, which is just sugar and egg whites, right? So they just happened to have a like 300 calorie low fat dessert option. So I, I ate a celebratory meal with my friends and family and I enjoyed it, you know, not just inhaled it. Um, I actually thought about the savory taste of the bites, which is not really present when I'm eating, you know, like canned chicken and, and rice cakes on the road or whatever, like I did with Jeff while we were driving to Washington. Enjoyed the experience, focused on uh, the, the social engagement, and then finished the day in a slight deficit, and I then got into the process once again the next day uh, for the next show, the next week. So that is very different than the typical approach of having 4,000 calories uh, and eating everything on the menu and having this kind of breath of air that sort of turns into a binge and you have mixed feelings about that you probably kind of regret anyway, but you also liked. Um, you can have that if that's your that's your deal post-season. But remember that when you're doing back-to-back shows, you need to be thinking about it as I'm literally in the midst of the most important phase. So I think having a plan going into that for what am I going to do on Saturday? What am I going to do on Sunday? Which often involves traveling is critical in planning that out ahead of time. So what foods can I travel with? And if I have long flights, um, how do I maintain a high water intake so that I don't get weird water retention from a long flight? Um, so for me, when I competed in New Zealand, easy, you know, I flew an hour and a half from Auckland to Christchurch, but then the next weekend I flew out to get there on Thursday before my show in the Bay area, that was a 12 hour flight. And the most important thing I did was that for that whole 12 hour flight, I kept my, my fluid intake very high, um, higher than normal. And the reason being is that you have a pressure controlled cabin on a plane. It actually has like zero humidity or close to it. So it is drawing water out of you and you're getting dehydrated passively um, a lot faster than you might otherwise expect. And it will create kind of this delayed weird water retention that can take 24 to 48 hours to dissipate for most people. So if I'm getting there on Thursday morning, that might be enough time, but I can absolutely counteract that by working very hard to keep a high fluid intake. And then you can be actually good on the same day you land. Uh, And there are some issues with, you know, getting your circadian rhythm in check. So I do take melatonin at the night time of what it should be of where I'm going and do the best I can to, to, to adjust to the sleep and eating schedule of the time zone I'm going into. Um, but you know, there's only so much you can do in three days. Um, but I, it it did not cause me a problem, let's say for my peak with the strategy I just described. So there are some things like that that you really have to think about when you're doing back-to-back shows. Um, you don't, you, don't, you can't afford to have a blowout on Saturday that takes you till Thursday to get back into the same kind of condition you were in because then you have to load again. And that could be a very stressful process. And even if it does end up working out fine, you're going to be a mental wreck that whole four or five days wondering like, should I pull out of the show? You know, should I, like, are, can I, are these the flights for my next show like cancelable, et cetera? And just to avoid that, you really want to have a game plan that you're confident in 
um, going into it so that you're not uh, risking the ability to peak three times in a row. I think this was super informative. Is there anything I didn't ask you that I should have? You know, I think you covered a lot of ground, uh, Lauren. These are great questions. And uh, the most important thing that I can really just kind of reiterate to people is that this should be a process that you have trialed. And practicing it when you are in pretty good shape, close to peak condition, uh, is, is critical. And basically taking video or pictures and similar lighting uh, once you're lean on the day of your refeeds, the day after, two days after, and the day before is one of the most powerful tools you can have uh, in order to have confidence that your peak week won't do something unexpected. So um, do not go into this flying blind. You wouldn't do that in any other situation. You have the ability to plan and um, just make sure that you are uh, confident in your approach and you've tried it before you do it on game day and then just stick to it and reevaluate afterwards. And the second most important thing I would say is especially and even for veteran competitors, but especially for early stage novice competitors, it is very challenging in the physiological state you're in, which impacts your psychology, and also for you being an early competitor and the stresses of show day and how much it means to you and how much you've been focused and unfortunately hyper-focusing on it. To be objective and to not hyper-focus on certain aspects of your physique. It's not uncommon at all for someone who's trying to get leaner to deplete themselves too much, come in flat and not carb load because they don't want to lose that one vein that they see in their front delt that no one else can see and the judges absolutely can't see um, and freak out because they're they're losing all their their, their hard work um, but sacrificing a bunch of fullness and having a physique that is 80% as good as it could have been to lose something that is not even visible to others. So have a coach or at least have an experienced competitor who's had experience looking at the changes in your physique to kind of vet the changes you're making and even though I have done 16 shows now, um, I would have come in more depleted without the advice of Alberto and his eye. And I had a better peak because I had that objective confirmation. Um, and we collaborate together. Uh, and some competitors do the opposite. So for example, Jeff, who I competed with, he has a tendency towards freaking out when he doesn't look as full and as big. And, you know, even though he knows better, like midway on Friday before his his first show of the season, his pro debut, he was like, I think I'm looking flat. And I said, Jeff, you're only through half your meals. Would you expect a competitor to be looking full at this point? He's like, no, you're, you're right. I, a client, I would say, just wait longer. It's only noon. You know, you've you've eaten one meal three hours ago or four hours ago and another one 20 minutes ago. Like, why, why would I expect to be filled out? Um, and I said, hey, man, you know, and also, if we don't look full tonight, we can just eat more. And then you have the whole overnight to clean up. And he's like, you're right. Okay. And he said to me, all right, you're my eyes tonight. And I said, okay, sounds good. Vice versa. And um, both of us had a very good peak at, at the at the show. And um, we probably would have had a worse peak without one another there. So I can't reiterate how much uh, trials before you do the actual thing are and having an objective uh, peer review, if you will, to kind of He's bring just... it full circle to the mass approach to things. Yeah, and I think to your point, even if you are not only an experienced competitor, but an experienced coach, and you're very comfortable doing this for someone else, that doesn't necessarily mean you can apply those objective, sound principles to yourself when you know, you're know you the one who is emotionally reacting to uh, the, that particular kind of high-pressure situation. 100%. No matter how good of a surgeon you are, 
you are not ethically or legally allowed to perform surgery on like a family member, right? Because we, there's a conflict of interest and you may not make the best decisions. And who are you more emotionally close to than your own brain? So that, that applies probably tenfold here. And not that this is, you know, surgery, but it is surgical in, in some ways, the, the necessity of controlling things and, and making decisions on the fly. So I uh, just want to echo and support that. I totally agree. So tell us what you have coming up competitively. Yeah. So by the time this comes out, I will have just competed in the WNBF Australia uh, show and, and hopefully done well enough to get a pro card. There are multiple pro cards potentially up for grabs there, depending upon the competitor numbers. Um, and if I have not turned pro there, because I do want to compete at Worlds as a pro, not just as an amateur, um, then I will be going back to California to compete in Los Angeles uh, the following weekend as my last ditch effort before actually Worlds, because you can turn pro at Worlds. So I have between uh, two to three more shows remaining. Um, one more close domestically for me. It's, it's a short flight over to Brisbane, and then one potentially back in California, and then definitely Worlds, which is in Seattle this year. Amazing. Well, yeah. we're all rooting for you, and best of luck with the upcoming shows. Can't wait to watch you turn pro. Fingers crossed. Well, hey, we'll see. I uh, I know that there's many, many worthy competitors out there, but I'm going to give it my all, and I appreciate the support. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and your experience. I think this was a, a really productive chat, and I hope that the subscribers enjoyed it. And if for anyone who isn't aware, we've started doing office hours every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern time. You can join us live on YouTube. You can submit questions beforehand or you can ask questions live. Uh, you can also follow the Mass Instagram at Mass Research Review. And thank you so much for watching this video.